Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. First up, we take a look at the business stories that are making uh, this morning's papers and indeed uh, online. Joining me, I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Susan Hayes Colleton of Hayes Colleton, aka the Positive Economist. Plus, we're also joined by John Isle, uh, the Deputy Business Editor at the Sunday Times in Ireland. Uh, good morning to you one and all. How are things? Very good, Bobby. All Thank good. You. Great. John, we might kick off with you. Um, the ID were out, the IDA were out last, yesterday. Um, IDA jobs fall for the first time in a decade. It looks as if this tech slowdown was more impactful than originally uh, was communicated. Yeah, well, there are two things that at work here. There's the the amount of jobs that are being added by these firms, and then, of course, the amount of jobs that are being shed. And the really the really big striking number to me is that client firms added just under seventeen thousand new jobs over the course of twenty twenty three, and that's down by forty eight percent over the year before. So while big tech firms like Microsoft, Google, Amazon have been cutting, you know those numbers have been in the hundreds, let's say, over the last year or so. The more significant number to me is that they're not hiring at the rate that they use. Yeah. They're adding fewer jobs. Now, these firms, these IDA firms tend to be, uh, you know, big employers, uh, large employers, but employers of highly paid people. So the real impact down the line here is not just in overall jobs numbers, right? Unemployment is still very low in Ireland. But to me, the long-term impact will be on the income tax category for the exchequer because a typical tech job, uh, it's probably pay, worth three other jobs. It's worth about, yeah, yeah, a little bit more than two, in fact. Yeah. Um, so it's the tech layoffs, and then it's also the, the decline in the vaccine production. Pfizer is a very big employer as well. And we see these, these, uh, these figures coming through in the GDP and corporate tax numbers as well, which have been tailing off. Okay. And one of the things that probably isn't picked up by these figures, Susan, is that the tech people that were displaced here and unfortunately lost their jobs anecdotally we're told that most of them secured other jobs. So maybe the numbers aren't as bad as as the figures actually read. I think there's a few things to look at here. And first of all, can we give a shout out to all of the Leaving Cert Economics students in the country where this was their Leaving Cert Economics project that they had to submit on at these very days. So they're all, anybody who's listening this morning uh, or indeed reading Ian Curran's piece is going to be saying, I, I really know everything about this. Uh, so what I do think, there's a couple of things that stand out here to me. First of all, when you look at the largest announcement, the single biggest investment was analogue devices. That was in Limerick. They also talked about Eli Lilly, their expansion in Limerick and Verizon, who um, announced earlier this week that they're going to establish a new global centre of excellence in Limerick. Now, I was in Limerick yesterday. Fantastic city. Great. There's uh, phenomenal facilities, etc. But I also read the DAF.ie rental report. There's 250 homes to rent in Munster on the 1st of November. Yeah. 250. So when we even look at one of those announcements announcing 600 jobs, there's also a, a capacity challenge there. And so the where thing, they all live in Limerick is what you're saying. And, and beyond yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. has to be a really big, a really big issue. The other thing to point out here is ID Ireland said one third of the investments were either Greenfield or first time investments. So the, the, in my opinion, actually, John, like the, the long term impact of those Greenfields means that you can see an awful lot of further development. But we need to look at this in a cohesive way as well. It's not just about bringing the jobs here, but the, holistic services that need to be around these jobs along the way. John, they say that corporate uh, success is largely around timing 
Martin Shanahan certainly seemed to get his right. That's right. Yeah. No, Martin Shanahan, of course, was the um, the CEO of IDA Ireland until late last year when he left kind of abruptly. He had he had signaled in July 22 that he would be leaving at the beginning of this year, but in fact departed in October when um, he got a job uh, as a as a senior partner in Grand Thornton, Ireland, yeah. right? Which is a great job for him and probably a, a, a bump up in um, in terms of in terms of compensation. And what's significant, of course, is the timing. Now, there's a there's a short um, unsigned piece in the in the Irish Times saying uh, he must have seen something coming in terms of uh, this job slowdown in the IDA. And I'd say you wouldn't have to be a prophet to see it in July 22. That's when interest rates yeah. started going up. And, you know, the tech sector is probably the most leveraged into interest rates aside from the financial services sector. So you could kind of see those tech jobs would be going once the interest rates started going up. Maybe what nobody saw was how many times the ECB would lift rates and just how expensive money would become. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um, private schools, this makes the front page of the Irish Times today, Susan. Mm-hmm. Private schools raised fees by up to 17% this year. So when we talk about a cost of living increase, this is certainly an impact for some people. Oh, very significantly indeed. So first of all, I went to Coachford College myself. It wasn't a private school and I'd say private school wasn't on the agenda at home. Uh, but I do work through the work that we do, Bobby, with tens of thousands of teenagers and and indeed with teachers and, and indirectly thus through parents. Indeed, th- this is a very significant increase in cost. I know that people listening today will automatically assume that people who go to, or sorry, the people who can afford to go to private school do come from very significant means and in many cases they do. But in other cases, this is a really big expense. And I, I was just struck by the fact that now while the while the headline here from Carol Bryan and Vivian Clark says private schools raise fees by up to 17% this year, there were other schools that increased them by up to up to 2%. In, in essence, what we're hearing here is that, yes, it is a very significant increase, there is 112 million that the state puts into these schools. Uh, up until 2009, that was never the case. Um, the state treated fee-paying and free education schools equally. So it's only since the austerity of around about that, that time when it was different, it was since then, uh, private schools have been getting less money from the state proportionally. What I mean by that is the free sector continue to be funded on the basis of one teacher for 19 students, while fee-charging schools are funded on the basis of 23 students. That was brought in by Rory Quinn, Minister for Education at the time. So this, the summary of this piece is, number one, yes, there's an increase. Number two, this is this is looking down the line, where is this going to go? And number three, of course, politically, can the state keep doing this? Okay. The argument, of course, is that if the state doesn't keep doing this, well, then for those people who can't afford to send those people to private schools, if they become much more expensive, then, of course, then that cost relies okay. on the state. If we're talking uh, full disclosure here, you talked about Coachford. I was in Castlenock College and I see they're reducing their fees by 6% next year. So is it isn't because, all is bad news. Is that because of generous donors <laughs> like yourself, Bobby? Or the, the alumni, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John, what about your take on this? Well, what always uh, jumps out at me... Now, I, I didn't go to secondary school here. I went to secondary school, a public school in, in New York. Um, what always surprises me about this debate is how relatively inexpensive private schools are in Ireland. Now, yeah. some of that is obviously the state subvention, but it always strikes me that they're cheaper than sending your child to a full-time creche, which many people afford to do. Uh, and, and although it is a crucifying expense yeah. for anybody with children, especially with more than uh, one child in creche at a time... Um, if middle-income people can afford a crash, I suppose they can afford a private school as well. So, like, 
I find it hard to muster the sympathy for anyone who is dealing with a, with a kind of a, a cost increase on an education that, to me, by definition, is already a luxury expense when there are other options. Now, I take Susan's point, which is that the state is going to have to pay for these kids one way or the other. If they're priced out of their private education, they'll fall back on the, yeah. on the, on the state, uh, state non-fee-paying uh, schools anyway. So they will be paid for by the state one way or the other. So I suppose where you come down on this is how you how you think a democracy should function and whether the baseline should be the state pays for your education and that if you want something extra, that's your expense. It's, 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 and it shouldn't be, but it's a hugely divisive thing. It can be and, very divisive, yeah. Uh, and, divisive. and it shouldn't be, in my view. And you rightly point out there are many people with kids in these schools that are struggling to make these payments. Uh, well, and and, and they, they, they take great personal sacrifice because they think... They really need to do this. Exactly. And, and maybe they don't. And, and But I, I think that we shouldn't assume that only people who go to private school mm. come from, from a household where where that expense or a 17% rise. That's the point I'm making, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to matters business because uh, that's what we're really here to talk about. Uh, P, PTSB shares, Susan's, they surge uh, as the bank gets the go-ahead uh, to resume paying dividends. Now, this was a kind of a surprise decision by the central bank. And I'd be interested in your own thoughts on what you think this will mean uh, for this, which is still uh, a largely state-owned company. Okay, so Joe Brennan tells us that the announcement has now been made and a decision has been made that PTSB can now pay a dividend. That's not to say it will, that's to say that it can. Now, the markets responded to this warmly. Uh, the bank surged 6.7% in Dublin, giving it a market valuation of £913.9 million. So my own take on this is, first of all, there is a, a cohort of people out there who invest in shares simply to see them rise. And there's an entirely other cohort of people out there who want that, but more importantly, they want a dividend as well. And I would say that it's primarily those investors, when they see something like PTSB introducing a dividend, that you view your income-focused investor is looking is looking for it. But as I say, first of all, they're not necessarily going to... The timing of that is, isn't sure. The second thing to point out here is that Irish taxpayers, collectively among us, uh, we hold a 57.4% stake in the state's bank. And the reason, when you say that it's been a surprise announcement, the thing is, is that it had the bank hasn't actually been able, it has been consistently delivering subpar profits as its balance sheet shrank dramatically over more than a decade, uh, Joe Brennan says. When I think of PTSB, I think that that has probably been the bank that has had the greatest proportion of tracker mortgages in comparison to the other two. So therefore, of course, as we know, they have been costing the, the bank money. But what has really led to the turning of the fortunes here in, in sorry, in PTSB is, is Ulster Bank and the fact that it was able to purchase much of Ulster Bank's loans and yeah. rising uh, interest rates as well as, as Joe has on. Yeah, the sub-story here is that Ulster Bank couldn't have left at a worse time mm. in terms of leaving the market uh, because... Uh, PTSB now have picked up mm. uh, this bounce, um, you know, after they sold their loans effectively. For sure. Both Ulster Bank and KB, KBC left before the interest rate change, which has made the banks incredibly profitable, as, as profitable as they've been since the, since the financial crash. What's really interesting about this to me um, is, one, the surprise of it is, is that nobody was expecting it. But th- this, is, this issue around dividends is really um, vexing investors in Irish banks at the moment. I have a story about this in tomorrow's Sunday Times. The Irish banks are, are sort of underpriced. They're discounted very severely in the market, despite um, how strong their profits have been this year. And that's mainly because 
even though they keep promising we're going to pay dividends, we're going to do share buybacks, it's only been done on a limited basis. Yeah. They're expected to rise in 2024, but I think investors are really waiting for the annual results and the final confirmation of how much these banks are going to pay down in their capital. And one of the reasons that's been cited by analysts and investors is the regulatory intervention, this, this kind of uh, these dividend blockers that uh, the, the regulators have put in kind of to really punish, in a way, uh, as a reprimand to the way the banks behaved before when they, they paid out their capital in dividends and didn't hold enough back for the bad loans that were coming down the line. Yeah. So a lot has been done to secure the future of the Irish banks in terms of having very... Well, are the capital. banks not under huge pressure to pay dividends when the results are so strong? Absolutely they are. And investors are saying, you know, until you pay us the dividend, uh, start paying these dividends regularly and repeatedly, um, we're not going to... There's no way we're bidding up the share price. It's very interesting to see the shares in PTSB bounce 6.7% yesterday, which more or less confirms that. What we want, right. to, see, what we want to see is dividends. <clears throat> That's the proof of sustainable profits. Bear in mind, though, the PTSB shares had declined 13% in the past 12 months. And that is in contrast to AIB that had increased 14% and Bank of Ireland that had increased 6%. So there's also a comparison between the banks themselves and their performance too. Uh, let's move to re- retail, Susan. Um, H&M sales fall, retailer apparently losing ground. This is from the Irish Examiner. Mm. Their local currency sales fell in the fourth quarter as a Swedish fashion retailer loses ground against Zara owner uh, Intedex, uh, which reported a sales boost earlier in the year. So this story, Helen Reid and Anna Ringstrom in the Examiner uh, talk about this. And what confused me about the story is the last line in it is in Swedish crowns, net sales for the quarter were roughly unchanged at 62.6 billion crowns. So I think this story ultimately is, uh, I think it's made up of two things. One is that the local currency sales fell, right? So so that's that's the difference here uh, as distinct to to the net sales and that Zara seems to be gaining ground when H&M is maybe not holding its own in in the same way. But the other thing, and I think this points us to a wider story, and that is that H&M's figure was an improvement on the 10% fall at Warren of September when unusually warm weather hurt sales of autumn winter collections from across the sector. So I think there's a, 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 this to me is is pointing out towards that how retailers need to obviously be understanding of of other trends that are happening. And another thing I noticed in, in a piece during the week from the CSO, is that the proportion of retail sales transacted online was 5.2% in October 23 in comparison to 4.6% in the same month last year. So also the ability for companies to be able to transact online in the the markets where they're operating, of course, is ever more present. Okay. Uh, John, it's sort of a sub-story, just staying in retail, and I heard a little bit about this during the week. Uh, Shoplifters, uh, many of them are north of 65. uh, And again, that's a quote from a, a super value owner. Um, but the shoplifting, you know, it, it's 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 at a level that is truly eye watering. Well, and, and, and you know, the 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 sub piece of this is that the the hardship and the abuse mm. and the just the the just the all the stuff that retail staff have to put up with here it, is is truly shocking. There are some some really vivid anecdotes in this in this story by Conor Gallagher in the Irish Times. Um, talking about pensioners stealing meat, medicine, health and beauty products, painkillers, anything they can slip into a bag. Uh, stories of, um, you know, 
people who are uh, completely brazen, completely aloof to any law, including teenagers on electric scooters, etc. I think this kind of fits into the the wider story that we've been talking about really since probably the summer of, you know, crime in general uh, becoming more, let's say, visible and present in, in everyday life. And retailers seem to be suffering the brunt of this. What I was looking for in the story, and I I would love to know, because this has been reported in the US media as well, a similar kind of trend, is, is this a a localized phenomenon um, that is especially bad in in certain locations or in certain shops? Is it a nationwide phenomenon? Are we having a kind of a cultural trend here towards more retail crime or not? Because because in the States, what you see is like certain locations, like San Francisco is, is one example that gets brought up a lot. Shoplifting has become like extremely intense, but the national figures don't seem to have budged over there. Um, and so because like it might be in a very prominent location, it becomes a kind of a wider story as a result. But in any case, if you're the poor owner of a super value who has to wrestle a shoplifter, you're constantly being plagued, losing tens of thousands of euros in potential sales to people who are walking out the door without paying. Uh, one practice that's pointed out in the story here, which I found fascinating and never thought of, um, I obviously don't have a very uh, developed criminal mind, is that people will do things like they'll push a trolley through to pay. They'll pay 50 euros, but there'll be 20 euros of stuff yeah. in that trolley that they're not paying for. They'll somehow get out with a kind of a sort of 40% percent <laughs> well, discount well, on their shop. There was one uh, shopper here, shoplifter referenced here. She's a pure professional. She pays for her coffee, gets 20 mm. cigarettes, then pushes a trolley worth 400 euros mm. out the door. Yeah. Like, it's alarming stuff. Oh, it is. It's, it's very alarming. And as you say, Bobby, it's the, the abuse and everything that, that comes with it. But and there, there's quantifiable numbers in here as well, where I see that uh, one estimate of, of the Retail Grocery Dairy and Allied Trades Association, they pointed that shoplifting costs stores an average of €40,000 a year in lost stock and additional costs. And I mean, what staff member wants to, or even a shop owner wants to, to deal with that? It's a really, really significant issue. And the other thing as well is that there has been a 14% increase in retail theft with almost 30,000 incidents reported to the Gardaí. And some groups told the Oireachtas Committee that this underscores actually what the mm. real number would be in Conor Gallagher's piece here. What, what's disappointing in this piece is that we're reading about the retail sector, Bobby, from the crime and security correspondent mm. in Irish Times. That's, that, that's the issue in this for me. Um, uh, JP McManus made an amazing uh, donation to the GA earlier in the week, John. Um, some... Uh, Divisive comments on it. Uh, Matt Cooper speaking in uh, the Irish Daily Mail today says seems to have a difficulty with uh, uh, JP's 30 moon, 32 million gift to the GAA. And then again, the unnamed sources in the Irish Times, as you call them, talk about the scramble for McManus's millions to begin. So what, what's your take on this donation? Truly very generous. You know, again, if you were cynical about it, you could say he has it anyway. Mm. He's not tax resident. All these things. But, you know, it's still a really generous donation. And his charity has done amazing work for cancer clinics, cystic fibrosis treatments, mental health care. For, like, these are all doing good to society. For sure. Um, if I think Matt Cooper is trying to, let's say, look through, <coughs> look through the surface generosity to, you know suss out what McManus is trying to achieve maybe personally with these donations. Um, And he says, uh, you know, 
it's not unfair to say that it's an investment in his local reputation, that he enjoys a great welcome everywhere he goes in his native county because of it, one that will now be national. Such benefits can be priceless. So Matt Cooper seems to be saying, for the price of $32 million, J.P. McManus is re- rehabilitating or burnishing his image uh, uh, for a national audience. Um, elsewhere in the piece, Matt Cooper seems to be insinuating that J.P. McManus, if he really wanted to do good for Ireland, should be a tax resident here and pay on his, you know, his his vast wealth. But then he'd have no control over where the money would be spent. And that's part of the reason people do charity is so that they know how the money is how the money is being spent. And maybe there's a wider question here uh, is, you know, does the GAA, if you were paying, if you were paying more into the taxes, you know, would that money go to the GAA? First of all, and if that's what your wish is for your money, why would you prefer to give it uh, to the taxman to do it? And then the, the wider question, I guess, becomes: Well, does the, the GAA deserve a bigger subsidy from the taxpayer to begin with? And yeah. JP McManus says, "No, they just deserve my money, and I'm going to give it to them." What is your take on this, Susan? Well, I have, you know, sat with a red jersey, namely Cork, uh, often against Limerick GA, and you know, we've seen the benefit of, of his money, all right. Uh, so, look, what I would say here is that, first of all, I think where Matt Cooper is coming from is that yes, JP McManus has it, and he's and he's donating it, and there's a lot of other people doing an awful lot of other great things that don't make the headlines. I think that's one of his points. And look, fair enough, Matt, you'd be you'd be right on that. I think the the piece here in Cantlin is saying that uh, JP McManus did say this money is not to go to the county board. It is to go to the club and I really welcome that. Now, personally, I'm not part of it. Keep no. the bureaucrats away from it. Well, I mean, this sounds like it, do, it, it is going to, to the end user, all right. And of course, again, being from the largest county in, in Ireland originally, that when you send money, equal money to different counties that are made of different sizes and different numbers of clubs, this does mean different things for different people. Poor old Cork. They're going to get very little. No, well, now, Cork is an awful lot going for it anyway, Bobby. And we are going to put that money to great use across the county. And, and genuinely, as uh, I think when it comes down to the fact that some clubs will get two and a half thousand and some could get 30,000. I can see how this will create a lot of scramble for the money all right but overall I think this is welcome. The other thing as well that that I just want to point out that Matt Cooper does talk about and I just don't think it quite needs this thing. He said that he has organised scholarships to provide third level education to selected students each year picking up on those young people again that we're talking about and then he says the transfer of the money reduces the tax paid in the UK. Personally speaking I would prefer to see scholarships for young people in Ireland than the UK government getting that money. Yeah. So I, ju- I just would like to mention Yeah, No, no, I think it's a good debate and I think we, we dealt with it very fairly. Uh, finally John, um, I don't know how your rage is when you're in the Sunday Times there and <laughs> you feel like throwing the computer through the window but there's a there's an avenue now for your violence, I for your workplace say, violence. I have to say, it's, I'm normally a very composed person but I, I really do get tech rage, Bobby. I have to admit it. Um, what I love about I love many things about we this We better story. explain this yes, story. So there is a place now called it's called the Rage Room where you can go and just break things that normally you're not permitted to break. And the idea is, I, I suppose, to express your anger um, and to sort of get it out of your system by smashing things. Now, I have to give a shout out to my brother. When we were teenagers, <clears throat> we imagined exactly this kind of thing. We said, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if there was an amusement park where you could just break things? You know, you could smash a car window or whatever it is, you know, kick down a door. It turns out somebody has made my wish come true. So this place, <laughs> this place 
Sounds amazing. You can kind of bring your own items to Smash. So, so like your ex-wife, yeah, a picture of your ex-wife. of your ex. You can bring your old broken computer, your laptop that won't boot up anymore. You've really thought whatever. about this, John. Oh, I, I mean, I'm I really struck by yeah, the level of yeah. detail that's going into this answer. So there, there's, great, there's great details in here. My favourite one is that we, <laughs> we mostly have groups of young women coming in since we opened, which... At first glance, I would have thought, no, I, you know, men would like to go in there and smash things up with a, with a baseball bat. But I think this is saying something about the cultural situation of young women in our society. If the people who are angriest right now going into the rage room to break things uh, come from that particular cohort. And then the, the, the writer here, Keanu Brin, says a key tip is to know what you want to achieve in the room so that you can keep up the intensity and maximize your fun because the time will pass quickly. You get 20 minutes to break break things in this room. Yeah, and it's going to cost you, what, 35 euro? It costs you 35 euro, but I think it's money well spent. And I, I love the idea. You, you really need to be efficient with your anger here. You know, just like... <laughs> seems pack, you need to have goals and objectives. Last you know? you on this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it seems that you need to have aims, goals and objectives, you know, in order to achieve that return on investment. I, I, I Personally, I'm going to stick with my dividend-yielding shares uh, <laughs> rather than spending my 35 euro now getting my anger out. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, that there's... There's a place for everything and there's an opportunity everywhere. So this is the rage man, Lucas Baltrusis. That's a, even his name sounds quite cool. Well, listen, <laughs> thanks for a great review of the business stories indeed. Uh, Susan Hayes Collerton and John Isle. Uh, enjoy your weekend and we'll chat to you all soon. Thanks, thanks Bobby. Bobby. Down to business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.